North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Welcome to the Impossible State. My name is Ellen Kim, Deputy Director and Senior Fellow of the Korea Chair here at CSIS and the moderator for the today's show. Uh, today we are going to talk about a very timely topic, the summit between Kim Jong-un and Russian leader Vladimir Putin. And I can't think of a better expert to discuss the topic than the two guests we have here with us today, Victor Cha and Angela Stent. As our listeners know, Victor Cha is one of the hosts of this program, but just for today, he's joining as a special honor guest. Uh, but let me properly introduce him. Victor Cha is a Senior Vice President for Asia and Korea Chair at CSIS, as well as Distinguished University Professor at Georgetown University. Angela Stent is a Senior Advisor to the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies and Professor Emirata of Government and Foreign Service at Georgetown University. She is also a senior non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institutions and co-chairs its Hewitt Forum on Post-Soviet Affairs. She is a senior advisor to the USIP. She serves on the board of a visitor of the Marine Corps University. From 2004 to 2006, she served on at, as national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. And from 1992 to uh, 1999 to 2001, she served in the Office of Policy Planning at the U U.S. Department of State. Her primary research focus is Russian foreign policy with a special emphasis on the triangular U.S.-Europe-Russia relationship. She has an impressive book publication record, but for the interest of time, um, if I highlight her latest book, which you can see on the screen at the back, um, the Putin's word, Russia against the West and with the rest. Uh, this book won the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy's Prize for the best book on U.S.-Russian uh, relationship. Uh, and this year, this book was published in an updated version with a new chapter on the Russia-Ukraine war. So with that, let me start with the Dr. Stanton. Um, given that you have a you know, very timely book on the war in Ukraine and based on your deep understanding of Putin and his worldview, how would you assess his motivation to turn to North Korea and meet with Kim Jong-un? You know, do you see that as a sign of um, you know, weakness and desperation, as many other people claim? And how do you think that um, this meeting was, uh, will be received by Russian people domestically? So thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, this was a real reversal of fortune uh, for you know Vladimir Putin and the great Russian state to come as a supplicant essentially mm -hmm. uh, to the leader of North Korea asking for ammunition. Mm -hmm. uh, you know Russia has, is running out of ammunition and artillery. Uh, North Korea has large stockpiles of it, actually much of it from the Soviet period. So in a way, it's giving back mm -hmm. um, what was given to it by the Soviets. If we assume that there was an arms deal, and of course. We don't know what's come concretely what's come out of the summit, uh, but we have to assume and our government and other governments believe that that's what will happen. So on the one hand, you could say it's humiliating for him. Um, you know, he has to turn to the leader of the most isolated country in the world and ask for kind of old fashioned ammunition. 
But I see this also as, you know, as a result of the Russia-Ukraine war. Putin has in the back of his mind the creation of this post-West new world order, uh, turning his back on the West, looking toward China, obviously, as the main partner, but in a sense engaging with leaders in Asia and other countries, uh, for want of a better word, the global South, who may be authoritarian leaders, but who are neutral in this war, who don't want to take sides, and in fact, increasing Russia's influence in some of these countries. So you could also say uh, this is a way now he's elevating, of course, uh, Kim Jong-un to a much higher status than he's had before. But it's part of Putin's desire to create these new, if not alliances, at least partnerships and show that Russia uh, can still dominate in some areas of the world, Mm -hmm. even if it's rejected by the West. Um, And as for the Russian population, um, in my conversations with Russians before the war began, when I used to go to Russia, uh, many Russian experts spoke quite disparagingly about North Korea, about this kind of hermit kingdom, um, about the fact, um, about, you know, the extreme authoritarianism um, and isolation of the country. So I cannot believe that for the average Russian person, they see this necessarily as a great triumph for Russia. But no doubt Putin and the Russian media will presented as such. And I've been watching the media since uh, Kim Jong-un's visit began. And of course, they've been much more positive. So let me turn to Dr. Cha. Um, This summit meeting between Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin took place at the Russia spaceport. So what does that mean? And if North Korea launches a successful satellite launch in the next few months, what what impact will will this have on the U.S. extended deterrence in Asia? So uh, let me first start by picking up where Angela left off, which is this point about role reversal. You know, um, it, it, it wasn't too long ago that it was uh, the North Koreans that kept going to the Soviet Union and then to Russia for help. They, at first, they wanted um, loan forgiveness, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Then they wanted the resumption of uh, sort of Cold War era pricing for fuel. Right? All of that mm-hmm. stopped in 1990 when the Soviet Union normalized relations with South Korea and got a $3 billion loan from South Korea. They were not going to turn around and then subsidize, uh, continue to subsidize um, uh, oil exports to North Korea. Um, so, and they were always looking to Russia for technology, right, for their missiles. Some of their older missiles are basically based on Soviet engines. So all this time they've been sort of the supplicant and now we have this role reversal, as Angela said. Um, and so if you look at the case starting from July, right, or July of this past year on the occasion of the 70th anniversary of the armistice, what North Koreans called Victory Day, the defense minister, Shoigu, mm-hmm. as we see in this picture, went to uh, North Korea. Um, and um, Kim Jong-un uh, treated him very well extremely well like we would not expect kim jong-un to treat somebody so you know given the myth making in north korea they were clearly trying to send a signal about what they wanted to do uh, uh to do with russia um and so i think you know there i you know as, as angela said we the, the governments have been talking about an arms deal like we're pretty certain there's an arms deal there um um when the White House announced uh, that there was that first, what they suspected to be the first major arms shipment to the Wagner Group, mm-hmm. they released satellite imagery mm-hmm. uh, of that. Um, we here at CSIS then used the date stamp on that satellite imagery to take more pictures mm-hmm. of the border, the Tumangan Kasan mm-hmm. railroad mm-hmm. border. And so if we look at those pictures very quickly, we can show you that 
um, shortly after that uh, arms shipment took place, and we can show we can go to the imagery right now. Shortly after that arms shipment took took place, you can see here the date, mm -hmm. December fifteenth, twenty twenty two, and you can see here, right? These are all oil petroleum tanker cars that mm -hmm. are uh, at the border between um, uh, North Korea and Russia, and then we see here in the in the in the next picture. Um, so this is the Kasan Rail Facility, and here you can see, um, we can tell from the shape of the cars that these are ore cars, right? These are ore cars that are moving between, between, the, two, between the two sides. So very clearly, there is a lot going on between the two. Um, now, the visit to the space station, to me, is very ominous. It's not a good sign. Um, you know, as, as Angela knows well, like when you set up these summit meetings, whether they happen in the West or in, in, in the East, you don't pick places for no reason, right? And the fact that they picked the yeah. space facility at a time when we have seen North Korea fail two military satellite launches makes pretty clear that they are looking for um, technology in terms of launching their military mm -hmm. satellites. Um, then he is also uh, going to he's going to visit um, he's going to see like the Russian Pacific yeah. Fleet. I think yeah. they said yes. <clears throat> and you know, North Korea just rolled out a diesel-powered submarine that can uh, launch tense SL, uh, sea-launched ballistic missiles, mm -hmm. but they want a nuclear-powered submarine, yeah. right? And so I'm worried about that. Worried about that too. Mm -hmm. So I think all of this um, makes one concerned that, at least from my perspective, Kim Jong Un, you know, the so-called great North Korean leader, would not take a train all the way to Russia just for food. Right. Right. <laughs> There's got to be something else here, yeah. and based on all these places they're going, and now that we've learned the news that he's staying longer, that there's a lot going on here. What does this mean for deterrence on the peninsula? You know, very clearly, um, the United States and Korea have created this new nuclear cons mm -hmm. con consultative group, the Washington Declaration, all meant to try to shore up extended deterrence. I mean, I think that's still, I, I think that's still there, and I think it's still very important. Uh, but this just creates new challenges for uh, for the two allies. But I would say it's not like we didn't expect it. Like we would expect that North Korea was going to was going to launch a military satellite sooner or later, uh, and going to launch ICBMs and try to improve their submarines with Russian support. They may just do that sooner rather than later. If I could just add something to this. I mean, for years, right, Russia was part of these six-party talks, at least nominally and publicly committed to denuclearization um, of the Korean Peninsula and that North Korea should not acquire nuclear weapons, even though when you talk to Russians privately, you understood that for them, the threat of a united Korea as part of the West was greater than the threat of North Korea acquiring nuclear weapons. But now when Mr. Shoigu and the photo you just showed went to uh, North Korea to celebrate the anniversary, you know, the nuclear weapons were brought out and everyone was clapping. So I think this means this is the end of Russia trying to, uh, you know, persuade the North Koreans maybe to give up their nuclear weapons program. Mm -hmm. So I do, I do think it's an ominous uh, sign. And when Putin was asked uh, yesterday about, will you, would you help North Korea with satellite technology, he said, yes, that's what he's here for. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So this is uh, my question to you, uh, Dr. Stanton. Mm -hmm. You know, following up on what you just said, there's a deep concern about whether Russia will abide by the UN security resolutions. And mm -hmm. Putin indicated publicly that there are some restrictions in Russia's cooperation with North Korea. So do you have any thoughts on that? 
Well, so Russia did agree to the in initial sanctions against North Korea, mm. um, and to some extent it abided by them. But we do know that, you know, all the laborers, there were a lot of North Korean laborers in the Russian Far East. Not all of them returned to North Korea. Mm. They're still there. Um, and there were other signs that Russia was evading these sanctions and helping the North Koreans get, I think, some oil imports and things like that. So, yes, Putin repeated yesterday that there are some sanctions that Russia will still abide by. But I think we'll have to watch that very carefully. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're abiding by it less uh, than they were before, uh, just because, you know, they want whatever weapons they're going to get from the North Koreans. And uh, that's their imperative so they can continue, you know, prosecuting the war in Ukraine. Dr. Cha, so Chinese foreign minister will likely meet with um, Russian foreign minister soon. And there is a chance that um, President Xi Jinping will meet with the President um, Putin at the Belt and Road Forum in November. So if these meetings take place, then how would you read this? Well, so the first thing, if I could just add to what Angela said about sanctions um, evasion, I, you know, I... I agree. Like so, you know, I worked on the six-party talks mm -hmm. right. um, since 2006. <laughs> yeah. Russia has signed on to 10 UN Security Council resolutions mm -hmm. on North Korea. 10. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. But then there's this amazing picture of Shoigu and Kim at right. the Victory Day celebrations, as all of these ballistic missiles go mm -hmm. rolling by. All of them, every single one of them, a violation right. of UN Security Council resolutions. So that's not a very good sign in terms of, uh, for, uh, in terms of continued compliance. They may find some fig leaf to say, oh yeah, we're complying, but mm -hmm. I mean, the overall political message I think is pretty clear. They're, mm -hmm. they're not, and if they provide, if they provide satellite technology, of course they'll call it civilian space launch capabilities. Mm -hmm. They'll say that, you know, nor, uh, this is the sovereign right of North Korea to receive this and, and the Russians are helping them. But, um, uh, but UN Security Council re resolutions very clearly say that North Korea pursuit of a civilian space launch vehicle program is also a violation of UN Security Council resolutions because the technology they use is basically ballistic missile technology. So, I mean, in terms of China, you know, I think it's interesting because um, I think I think this is a real problem for China. Yeah. I mean, you know, he and uh, mm -hmm. she and Putin talked about they, they talked about this friendship, this something, no limits, no limits, right? No <laughs> limits partnership or yeah. some, something like that. But um, but I think it's this is I don't think the Chinese have said anything yet. And I think it's very difficult for them because on the one hand, they don't like Putin and Kim getting too close. Mm -hmm. Right. The Chinese basically feel like they have ownership over North mm -hmm. Korea. And so they don't like anybody to, to get too close. And when Trump talked about doing summit meetings with Kim, Xi Jinping at that point had not met with Kim Jong-un. He had not met him yet. But then when Trump talked about doing summit meetings, Xi Jinping met with Kim five times, five times. But then when the summits failed, Xi Jinping stopped meeting with Kim. Mm -hmm. So now, now because Kim and Putin are like, they're all over the news, you know, they're, uh, Kim is staying longer, right? They're very happy together. That puts pressure on Xi Jinping to try to engage more and not alienate the two of them. On the other hand, do they really want to be a part of this and be seen as responsible for prolonging uh, and fueling the war in Ukraine? I mean, every time North Korea does something bad, everybody blames China because they mm -hmm. say you have all the influence. So there's, I think on the other side, China doesn't want to support this. So. They're really under these, like, the very conflicting sort of cross currents. Mm. Personally, I think it is entirely in Chinese interests not to 
support this, mm -hmm. but they have chosen to connect their North Korea policy with U.S.-China relations, and they say as long as you know the United States is doing supply chains and all this Taiwan and all this other stuff with China, we're not going to work with them on North Korea, um, even though in this case it would entirely be in their interests to you know disconnect themselves from this unholy alliance. So. There are some rumors, I don't know whether you've heard them, that um, King John, King John un might go to visit China when he's done with his visit in Russia, mm. um, which would it's be very interesting to watch if that happens. That would be, that would be interesting, and that <laughs> right. would definitely show that China had made a choice. Right, right. Yeah. exactly. Right. They, exactly. It would definitely show that China, China had made a choice. If, if they did do that, I mean, then we really would see a cementing of this three-way relationship. Right. And, yeah. um, and really, you know, then you just have you know, bipolar blocks in Asia, right? The U.S., yeah. Japan, and Korea, Korea on one right. side, and then mm. China, Soviet Union, uh, China, Russia, Russia and North right. Korea on the other yeah, side. Yeah. Yeah. So here's my final question then. So where do we go from now here? Um, and how will, should the U.S. and its allies in Europe and Asia respond? Well, I mean, we have, uh, Victor Cho already mentioned it. We have to shore up the relationship. It's very good that we had the meeting mm -hmm. with South Korea and Japan and uh, President Biden because obviously the relationship between South Korea and Japan is not uncomplicated. And it's very good that there was this meeting and this commitment and, and uh, you know, a renewed U.S. commitment to both of our Asian allies. I also think it's very good that NATO is, you know, paying more attention to the Asian allies. Mm -hmm. um, we've had a little blip with the French who didn't want to open uh, NATO office in Japan but anyway <laughs> but I think that you know I think that will be uh, very important going forward um, you know we can criticize obviously and we will criticize the Russian North Korean uh, meeting if we ever find out what they agreed on I'm sure we'll criticize that too but the US has very little I would say leverage there mm -hmm. um, and I think the other thing that Putin has been doing by meeting Kim Jong-un is also to further intimidate the South Koreans to sort of try and punish them for the fact that South Korea did join the sanctions regime. It has condemned what Russia has done. And yet the South Koreans have noticed increased North Korean, you know, uh, uh, harassing activities. So I think uh, for all those reasons, yeah, just shoring up our allies in Asia and, uh, you know, making sure that the coalition stays. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there's, you know, no foreign policy decision is taken for only one reason. And so for Kim and Putin, there is clearly a transactional reason mm -hmm. to do this. But another is that Putin can send a message to South Korea. This is what happens when you support the war in mm -hmm. Ukraine. And, and, and Kim can send a message both to the United States and South Korea to say, look, I can cause problems for you, not just on the peninsula, mm -hmm. but in Europe as well, right, by, by, uh, by arming Putin. I can't imagine, like, he's giving them Putin the best stuff he's got. But, <laughs> but as, as Anna said, like, you know, we, this war has shown us that there's a munitions stockpile shortage all around the world when we have a war of this yeah. nature. But the one place where there's a lot of munitions is on the Korean Peninsula, mm -hmm. where there stockpiles of munitions um, is on the Korean Peninsula. On what the United States can do, I agree. There, there are not many levers here. The sort of pat response would be to go to the UN Security Council, right, mm -hmm. seek more resolutions, list more individuals and entities involved in these transactions, but we can't do that now because Russia and China are not gonna support that. Mm -hmm. So I do think like these other uh, groupings, NATO leaders, I mean, plus the Asia Pacific mm -hmm. Four, right? Mm -hmm. Plus right. Japan, South Korea, Australia, mm -hmm. New Zealand, yeah. or G7, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
which also this year included Korea, Australia, mm-hmm. Indonesia, and others. You know, I think I think these are sort of the venues in which you cannot pass resolutions like the UN, but you can certainly coordinate policy, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, so I think increasingly they're going to have to look to things like that. You know, of course, U.S., Japan, Korea, trilateral arrangements as well. But more broadly, I think, it, you know, because the Ukraine war has really collapsed the theaters, like it's all mm-hmm. one theater now, that um, these other... Um, um, you know, which previously had largely been sort of Europe-based groupings, um, will take on, I think, a more important role in terms of global governance overall, mm-hmm. uh, because the UN Security Council can't. And and this is, you know, this is the Ukraine war, but now this is one of their biggest challenges. Yeah, I mean, but let me add one more question there. So you see that there is a growing, you know, under like all these um, violations of multiple UN Security Council resolutions, and that means that there's a huge implication in, uh, on the rules-based international order. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean for us, and what should we do about this? What kind of world are we facing going forward? Well, if you ask Vladimir Putin, right, he, when he talks about the post-West order, it's the post-West disorder. Mm-hmm. I mean, what Putin and the people around him want is a, in a sense, a world order where there are no rules. Um, and that's where I think the Chinese and the Russians disagree about that, even though they both want a world order where the US <coughs> you know, doesn't dominate. Um, but we've already seen Russia violate so many, you know, the United Nations Charter um, by invading a sovereign country, which did nothing to provoke it. Mm-hmm. So I think the challenge is to try and retain as much as one can of that rules-based international order when you have at least one country uh, that's willing to violate it, even though Russia claims to be one of the great supporters of the United Nations. But unfortunately, in the Ukraine war, we've seen, um, you know, how powerless the United Nations is to stop or affect any of this, because you have Russia and China with a veto. Yeah, I mean, I clearly, you know, the Ukraine war is a, is a threat to the core of the liberal international order. Having said mm-hmm. that, we've seen NATO rally. We've mm-hmm. seen, um, you know, um, Things in Asia, we've seen things like the Quad, AUKUS, mm-hmm. US, Camp David, mm-hmm. U.S., yeah. Japan, Korea, mm-hmm. trilateral. Um, so in many ways, they, there has been a response to this. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, it, the, the story is not over. It's not right. nearly over. But um, I would agree. I mean, there is, there is the war itself and what Putin is trying to gain there. Mm-hmm. But there is what he hopes will happen to the international order as a result of it, both mm-hmm. China Russia and North Korea would certainly all like to see uh, the United States role, its legitimacy as a leader, its dependability. They would like to see that all be destroyed by uh, by the Ukraine war and by these arms deals and, and, and everything else. So um, so that's what's at stake. We all know what's at mm-hmm. stake. And and I think that um, the uh, the growing consolidation of the U.S. alliance network in Asia is of course related to China's assertiveness mm. and North Korea's uh, weapons. But if not for the war in Ukraine, I don't think we'd be seeing the response that we're seeing yeah. now because yeah. you know, everybody thought like we wouldn't have wars like this. Okay. And for it to happen like this, I think it's changed the way every leader in Asia thinks about security. Um, you know, the, when I go to Asia, nobody asks me about North Korea anymore. Okay. They, ask, they ask me about 
you know, and I don't know. So they asked me about the Ukraine, <laughs> Ukraine war, war. Like, like the question she, but then the, and then the other uncertainty yeah. they asked me about is U.S. politics. Right. Right? <laughs> even more uncertain. Even more uncertain. Right? So those are, those are sort of the two things, yeah. but yeah. yeah, but, but it's a, it, it's a real challenge, but I think the United States and allies are trying to meet that challenge. Yeah. I see. Well, very excellent. This was a really insightful and very timely discussion. I really appreciate both of you taking time to join us. And to our listeners and viewers, thank you again for joining us on The Impossible State. We look forward to joining, uh, seeing you join us in future podcasts. Thank you, and we'll see you soon. If you have a question for one of our experts about The Impossible State, Email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean Peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.